Thank you, Desmond, for reading our scripture tonight. We appreciate Desmond. We appreciate all of our young folks. We're glad that you're here tonight. We hope that our worship service tonight will be beneficial. We're grateful for those of you that are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity you have. We appreciate Brother Billy leading our songs tonight. We appreciate the songs that he selects each and every week. And we had a good turnout for Olive Grove Terrace today. And we appreciate all of those who were there. We had a good turnout, but we could have had better. Because I had to lead a song. I told Brother Billy at the conclusion today, listen, I'm killing those old folks out there. They don't want me leading singing. And yet I was pressed into duty today because we just didn't have enough fellows out there to lead. And so, uh, look, if I have to bargain and barter with you, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, we'll do something. But nonetheless, we did have a great number there, and we appreciate that so very much. We're looking tonight at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Tonight we're going to be talking about loving others means serving others. Jesus obviously loved all of us. He does love us. He will always love us. The Bible tells us that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps in 1 Peter chapter 2. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What does it mean to love another person? In John chapter 13, I think Jesus demonstrates genuine love. He shows us how to love. And so I want us to look at John chapter 13 tonight. I want to begin by, first of all, calling attention to the depth of His love. And really here we're talking about the sacrificial love of Jesus. And there are some ways that His love was reflected. As a matter of fact... It's very obvious that he has loved those of us who belong to the human family. Let me just share with you three ways his love has been reflected to us. First, it is reflected in the purpose of his life. Listen, if you would, to what Jesus said, or what John says about Jesus in verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Jesus was God's answer to the problem of sin. And you think about the weight of God's redemptive plan rested upon the shoulders of one person, Jesus Christ. The one that we identify as the Son of God. God had a plan in place before He ever created the human family, before He ever laid the foundation of the world. John speaks of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so, God had a plan in place. That plan entailed His only begotten Son ultimately coming to die for sin. Isaiah in chapter 53 talks about the suffering servant, the Messiah, 
who was despised and rejected by men. He said it was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Isaiah said, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You think about Isaiah writing some 750 years before Jesus came to earth. And he speaks of Christ as the rejected one. John said he came to his own, his own received him not. In Matthew chapter 1, the Bible speaks of Jesus, His earthly mother, and His heavenly Father. The angel of God said to Joseph in a dream, speaking of Jesus, that Mary would bring forth a son. And he said, she will call His name Jesus. For it is He that shall save His people from their sins. And then you think about Jesus during His earthly ministry. When he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came for the purpose of saving lost humanity. That would encompass all of us. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The sacrificial love of Jesus reflected not only in the purpose of his life, but in the position. That is, we talk about his position in life. I want you to think about something. Look, if you would, at verse 3 for a moment. The sacrificial love of Jesus reflected in his position in life. Listen to what John records about Jesus. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going to God. I want you to think for just a moment about who we're talking about. The second member of the Godhead, the eternal Word who became flesh. Back in the Old Testament, Jesus is identified on a number of occasions as the angel of Jehovah. Jesus has always existed. And he is an eternal being. As a matter of fact, Micah, when he foretold of the coming of the birth of Christ, he said, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting or from the days of eternity. The Lord Jesus has no beginning point, no ending point. How many times have you heard somebody talk about an individual? And they'll say, you know what? I remember when he or she was a nobody. Nobody knew about him. Nobody knew about her. She was nothing. And now, he or she is a somebody. We've all read about people like that. They came from obscurity. Maybe had little financial resources and means, and because of their talent, because of their ability, for whatever, for whatever they might have possessed, they became something. When you talk about Jesus as a second member of the Godhead, He has always been somebody. He's always been something. He wasn't a nobody who came to be somebody. 
He was a somebody who ultimately became a nobody for us, didn't he? Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? You've heard of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet he became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. What about in Philippians chapter 2? When Paul said, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Think about Jesus willingly, submissively, and humbly coming to planet earth. To live among his own creation. And ultimately to die for the sins of the human family. So I think his sacrificial love is reflected first in his purpose, secondly in his position, and then thirdly in his priority. If you were to have asked Jesus while he were upon planet earth, what is your priority? What do you think he would have said? Could I ask you what's your priority in life? If someone were to ask you what is your absolute goal in life, what do you want to do more than any other thing? Let me tell you what Jesus wanted to do more than any other thing. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus spoke of the Father. And here's what he said. I always do those things that please him. Jesus lived to please God the Father. Many of us, when we were growing up, got into trouble. We said, we did things, we went places we weren't supposed to go. And many times we did that at the expense of our parents. And sometimes individuals have stayed out of trouble, not because of the punishment that might be inflicted, but because they didn't want to hurt their folks. Because their intent was to please them. Don't you think Jesus sought to please the Father in everything he did? Now, I want to ask you this question. In light of everything that God has done for us, don't you think we ought to be about trying to please him? Don't you think our absolute, absolute goal in life ought to be to please God? What was it John said? This is the love of God. That we keep his commandments, his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. Why do we keep his commandments? Because we love him. We do so not because it's a burden to be born, but we do so because we love him. That's the kind of love the Lord wants. And by the way, you can please God. There are a lot of folks in our world today, they try to please other people. There are some that live with the intent of pleasing their mate, their spouse, their children, their grandchildren, whomever. And sometimes as much expense and time is involved in trying to please them, they never quite get the job done. They always seem to come up short. Let me tell you what, you can please God. Do you remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain in the presence of Peter, James, and John? And God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, in whom I'm well pleased. Can we not please God? Yes, we can. So the sacrificial love of Jesus, the depth of his love. Think with me if you would next 
about the duration of His love. I want to suggest to you tonight that genuine love doesn't fail under pressure. Look with me, if you would, again at verse 1. In verse 1, John said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father. Now listen to what He says. Having loved His own who were in the world. Now catch this. He loved them to the end. What was it Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love never fails, does it? Jesus never quit loving his disciples, did he? Is it not the case that the Lord loves us today? Those of us who are married, you remember when you stood face to face with the preacher and your future spouse and you exchanged vows? During the exchange of those vows, one of the things that was said was the intent to live together to win till death do us part. What does that mean? It means we love our spouse until the very end. Genuine love doesn't fail. One of the real problems in our world today People have artificial love, but they don't have genuine love. The first sign of trouble, what happens? Their love falters. Genuine love doesn't fail under pressure. Now I want you to think for just a minute about Jesus. This is the shadow of the cross before Him. He has just spoken of the fact that he's going to be departing from this world to the Father. What does that mean? It means he's going to die. And the weight of the sins of the human family are going to be heaped upon his head. Could Jesus have said, you know what? I don't think I want to go through with this. Could Jesus have walked away? He didn't, he didn't walk away, did he? Why? Because he loved the disciples to the very end. He loved God the Father enough to fulfill the redemptive plan. And listen, he loved us enough to fulfill the plan. Love doesn't fail under pressure and it doesn't bail under pressure. What do I mean? Look at verse 2 if you would. In verse 2, here's what John said, And supper being ended, the devil already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Think about that for a minute. Here is a guy that has spent an inordinate amount of time with Jesus. Has Judas been privileged to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him as he preaches and teaches to multitudes of people? Has he been privileged 
To hear Jesus explain certain things, yes. He's heard, as Peter would say, the words of eternal life. Not only that, he has had the opportunity to see firsthand Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet what did he do? Sold him out, didn't he? 30 pieces of silver. Judas had a price. And so, he betrayed Jesus. Sometimes, when people wrong us, betray us, gut us, do us wrong, people that maybe for a period of time we've loved, we've spent time with, we've eaten together, we've done all these great things together, but then they hurt us. What do we typically want to do? Bail. Bail. Walk away. Jesus didn't bail under pressure. Jesus could have said, you know what? Again, I'm not going through with this plan. Now, did the Lord know that he would be betrayed? Yes, he did. The Bible foretold of his betrayer. But when people hurt us, and I mean really hurt us, the tendency is to bail. But when you look at the teaching of Jesus, what did he say about those that would do us wrong? Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies, do good to them that curse you. That is, you be a blessing to them. Pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. Did Jesus not take love to a higher level? Yes, he did. Listen again to what he said in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Had God commanded the children of Israel, the Jewish people, to love one another? Absolutely. Go back to the old, old law. The newness of the command was the depth of love that Jesus demonstrated. And so here is Jesus going to the cross. Why? Because he loved us. And so we talk about the duration of his love. One of the problems that people have sometimes in our world today is they have difficulty coming to terms with a God in heaven that would love them despite their frailties and their problems and their mistakes and their sins. And somehow the devil has convinced them that they are unlovable and that God doesn't love them and that is the devil's lie. The Lord loved his disciples, didn't he? Did he love Judas Iscariot? Yes, he did. So, genuine love. Genuine love doesn't fail under pressure. It doesn't bail under pressure. But as Paul said, love never fails. And the Lord Jesus Christ set forth that great example. There's a third thing I want you to see in our study, and that is the demonstration of his love. Think about the selfless love of Jesus. Would you not say that Jesus Christ, because of his selfless nature, willingly served others? 
Now think about the context here in John chapter 13. Jesus realizes death is imminent. The cross is looming before him. And so in verses 4 and following, he does, he does something that garners a lot of attention from his disciples. Listen to what he said. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Let me just pause there for a minute. In order to appreciate what Jesus is doing here, a couple of things I think we need to understand. First, do you remember, do you remember how the disciples were jockeying for position or power in the kingdom of God? Back in Mark chapter 9, they had disputed among themselves who was the greatest. In other words, they wanted to be somebody in the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us that James and John, their own mother approached Jesus about what? Positions. Grant that these two sons might have what? A position when you come in your glory. One on the right hand, the other on the left. So they're about position. And really, we would say they're about being served. In the first century... The people in that day, they didn't wear Oxford shoes like I'm wearing tonight. With laces and socks, they wore sandals. And their feet were exposed to the elements. So just imagine walking down a dusty street. And your feet are hot and dirty. They may smell. And so when someone came into another person's home, a servant would take a basin of water and a towel and begin to wash the feet of the guest. And you just imagine how that would have felt. So here is Jesus and the disciples and no one has come forward to wash the feet of those who were there. So what does Jesus do? He takes off his outer garment, lays it to the side, takes a towel, which a towel would have been used by a servant. And what does he do? He stoops down and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples clean them. Don't you think that took a lot of humility? Don't you think Jesus was trying to impress upon the disciples in the first century a lesson? Well, what lesson was he trying to convey? First, the humility of a servant. 
What do I mean when I say the humility of a servant? Well, typically, servants washed the feet of others. So what's Jesus doing? He is assuming the role of a servant. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? Taking upon himself the form of a servant. Jesus came to serve. Now something we need to see here, first and foremost, as a servant, no task is too menial. Do you think maybe the disciples who were present on this occasion, do you think maybe they thought they were too good to wash the feet of another? Do you think possibly they thought, you know what, I'm going to be something in the kingdom. I've got a position. I've got a place of honor. If you think that's what I'm going to do, you're mistaken. So what did Jesus do? He showed them, didn't he? Can you see Jesus stooping down with that towel, that basin of water, taking those dirty, filthy feet and washing them? No task is too menial. Sometimes in the church, folks think, I'm too good to do this, or I'm too good to do that. Let me tell you what, it doesn't matter who we are. When it's all said and done, what are we? We're supposed to be servants, aren't we? Matter of fact, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Turn over to the book of Philippians very quickly. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Listen to, what, listen to how Paul introduces himself in this letter to the saints in Philippi. Paul, of course, along with Silas, had a part in the founding of the saints, founding of the church. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, now listen, servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, what was Paul? Wasn't he an apostle? Yes. Well, wasn't he a great evangelist? A missionary? Yes. Wasn't he, a, wasn't he an esteemed student in Judaism? Again, yes. He's got all these credentials. He is an apostle, a preacher, a missionary. He's this traveling evangelist. He is a penman. On behalf of God, and yet he identifies himself to the saints in Philippi as a servant. A servant. Look over in Philippians chapter 2. I mentioned that just a moment ago. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. Do you think the Apostle Paul understood servanthood? Yes. Where did he learn it? From the Lord. No task is too menial. Doesn't matter if we're a preacher, an elder, a deacon, whatever. Bible class teacher, again, whatever. 
When it's all said and done, strip away the title. When it's all said and done, we're a servant. No task too menial and no task too massive. Sometimes those of us who are in the body of Christ, those of us who claim to be servants, we think about a certain endeavor, we think about a work, we think about the responsibilities resting upon us, and what do we say? I don't know if we can do that. I'm not sure we've got the capabilities to fulfill that responsibility. Think about the Great Commission, going to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's a massive endeavor. And sometimes Christians shy away from that responsibility. Why? Too big. Too much manpower needed. Too much money. Let me tell you what. God would never give us a task to do if He didn't think we could do it. He would never tell us to do something if He wouldn't equip us, if, or rather, if He didn't see fit to equip us to fulfill it, would He? So think about it. No task too menial. No task too massive. The humility of a servant. Then secondly, very quickly, the heart of a servant. When it's all said and done, and you look at the life of Jesus, and you look at John chapter 13, the fact that He was willing to demonstrate servanthood before His disciples. Don't you think Jesus had the heart of a servant? And don't you think what He was trying to say to the disciples was this, you've got to have the heart of a servant. Look, if you would, very quickly, verse 12. When he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now listen to him. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him, than him who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus had the heart of a servant, didn't he? And if the church is going to be what it ought to be in the 21st century, you know what it's going to take? It's going to take every single member of the body of Christ young and old, viewing himself, herself, as a servant. There are a lot of folks, there have been a lot of folks down through the years that athletically didn't have the greatest of abilities, but they had a lot of heart. And so, Somebody who has a lot of ability, if they're lazy, won't get the job done. But somebody who has a little bit of ability with a lot of heart, they'll go a long way. Past week, I was listening to the radio on the way into the office one morning. And they were talking about a fellow that was a walk-on at the University of Memphis. Walked on as a long snapper. Played his way into being a tight end on the team. When he finished his career at Memphis, he was all-conference. Not only was he all-conference, but he set a school record 
the most receptions as a tight end. Wasn't drafted. Became a free agent. Signed with Tampa, the Bucks. They had already drafted someone out of Northwestern to be a tight end. They waived the guy from Northwestern. And the guy from Memphis made the 53-man roster. How'd they do that? Heart. A lot of heart. All I'm saying to us is we can do a lot of things. We've got to have humility and we've got to have heart. If we have heart, we can turn the world upside down. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. It might be the case that you're here tonight, you've never obeyed the gospel. What would you need to do? Well, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Acts 2, 38. Confess the name of Christ before others, Matthew 10, 32, and then be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 22, 16. If you'll do that, God will add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. And the Bible says if you're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful, won't you come back? Won't you come home to a loving God who will abundantly pardon us? We stand and sing.